0: Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me your host Stefan Neff. Today's another fantastic day for an interview and it's going to be a very intriguing interview for me because my gut feeling is that my guest today has actually had quite a similar journey to me yet we could probably be not more different if we tried starting with our genders starting with our backgrounds with where we live our experiences yet uh, as you will uh, uh, see soon um, we actually have fallen into the same traps and but we have learned similar lessons and therefore I'm so excited uh, to actually have Jill Riley on my show today. Jill welcome to my show.
1: Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to our conversation.
0: Mm, thank you very much. Now, see, and the reason that I say we are so different is, uh, Jill, you are a minister, you're a mm-hmm. pastor, and uh, and I have not found Jesus Christ. I'm an agnostic, a humanist. Um, I don't believe in someone else's imaginary friends. If I wanted to be derogatory, uh, mm-hmm. my wife has found Jesus Christ, so she is very much involved in her church and and believes in it. And she's on a mission to to get me sorted, uh, get me ready for whatever is coming. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, there's a bit of resistance there. Let's say that to the least. But we, it is, uh, it is. An interesting thing for me, therefore, to to have a very religious person on my show. Um, so I wanted to acknowledge that to start off with, because, for example, in my in my book, uh, my steps to sobriety, I talk a lot about uh, here we are <laughs> steps to sobriety. I talk a lot about God because it's it's mm-hmm. part of the twelve step system. Yet right. for me, it was a big problem in 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 the addiction recovery in the initial rehab to. God grant me the serenity when I don't believe in God. Mm-hmm. But I learned that God can mean a group of orderly drunks or a group of gr- druggies. Eh? So in that setting, whilst I speak out towards more a secular kind of, of audience, I guess, um, mm-hmm. it is. Uh, it will be an amazing journey today with you, Jill. So Jill, please tell me, uh, you were... When did your journey with Jesus Christ actually start? Was that something that came later on in your life, or were you as a little girl already uh, all involved in that?
1: Well, I was raised in the church literally when I was adopted the second time, when <clears throat> excuse me, when I was adopted, my uh, family was very instrumental in the church in the sense that my father was the head of the board of directors, mm. my uh, mother was the church secretary. So I was literally playing in the nursery when I was a little girl. So I was raised. I was raised in the in the church environment. I don't remember a time when we weren't in the church every time the doors were open, and so I I was always. Always at church. But I think my relationship with Jesus Christ really began when I became kind of an age of reasoning, seven or eight. I was baptized when I was eight years old and then just fell in love with the potential of what the church could be at its best. And so dedicated my life to as a teenager, as a very young teenager, I felt like I was called to serve in the church and to to be a part of this amazing vehicle of communication and relationship.
0: That's beautifully said, isn't it? Uh, the, what the church could do at its best. Because obviously, yes. for someone like me, who is, who is not necessarily involved in church, we hear in the news a lot of negative things about churches. Uh, Absolutely. And so and, they, and quite rightly so, because it has been a vehicle for, for very bad things to happen in far too many circumstances but equally there is this potential that so much good can come out of a, a group of people coming together with the desire to change the world for it to be a better place
1: absolutely and,
0: and that is the wonderful thing so this is basically whatever you make out of it and under the leadership of of hopefully someone who is enthusiastic and who can who can instill that willingness to take action to to change the world that is right i think
1: there's there's no limit to what a group of people who are passionate about a common goal can accomplish
0: isn't it take rotary rotary has made it a mission to get rid of polio um and they have worked really hard around the world to and you know apart from, from really some war-torn countries, we, they are on a mission to stamp out this, mm-hmm. this disease. So that's one group of people where are not church-affiliated and anything. So that is one example. There are many other mm-hmm. examples out there. And certainly, in all fairness, uh, give kudos where it is to uh, the church that my wife belongs to. There are some amazing people there and they are there for the, because of the goodness of their heart. Mm-hmm. they're out there helping others and so that's an absolute beautiful thing so now i, I i'll take that and i never heard it being said like that Um, uh, the way you've 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 chosen your words that was lovely
1: mm.
0: so everything is honky dory here you are a young girl <laughs> you're living the, the the life of jesus christ you become an, a minister at age 18 um yes So there you go. Well, first of all, I must say, when you're 18, you don't know your back from your front. And here you go out there preaching the gospel. Um, So hang on. How does that work? Are people not looking up and say, yeah, right, girl, grow up and then come back in 20 years and then we're talking.
1: I don't know. I often thought, you know why would people why would people listen to me? I mean I started out working with with adolescents and and um, children and so that felt a little bit more acceptable, uh, being so young. And I, but I was working with college students who were older than I was. And I was working with children who were way younger. So all, all ages, but at age 19, I became a part of a group that actually started a church. So me and three other men, we started a church at age 19. So I was just thinking, you know, who, who is going to listen to me, but that, but, you know, I believe that God just opened some doors and, uh, gave me uh, confidence and authority and, and encouragement and some some really great leadership behind me to help me grow and, and help me to learn in this in this process.
0: When you say help you to grow, typically, you're focusing though on creating a church, you're creating a system, you're finding your place within that system did your journey equally include some growth within you the soul searching your maybe maybe how you deal with negative emotions how Mm -hmm. you deal with imposter syndrome etc i mean were there was was that a time and was that a place where that came in or were you more focused on creating and building up a, a church?
1: Well, I think uh, there's several layers to that to that question. There's several answers. Uh, the first thing is dealing with uh, being an imposter. I dealt with that when I was say, leading a Bible study for a bunch of teenagers at, at the high school and feeling like, you know, who am I to say anything or teach anything to anybody? Mm -hmm. Uh, But as I got older and as I, even at 19, 20, 23, as I was doing this work, I had this very distinct feeling that I was called to it, that I was therefore, um, given, a permission and backing and, um, and authority to, to speak into mm-hmm. people's spiritual lives, which is a very, uh, daunting thing when you're dealing with people's spirits and their souls. You know, you can't take that, take that lightly. But on the same, at the same token, I was coming out of a very abusive, upbringing, a very traumatic upbringing, and I was dealing with PTSD. I was dealing with a lot of mental health issues that I didn't know that I was dealing with at the time, and so layered on top of this uh, probably overactive drive to succeed and to <laughs> serve and to be, be the best, uh, layered on top of that and underneath of it was all all of this trauma so sandwich in my success was definitely the the traumatic that I was that I was handling.
0: <laughs> and isn't it such a powerful driver? Um, because when you're you're finally um, going out there and experiencing the freedom, when you come out of out of this kind of, of maybe toxic, maybe hard, hard environment, um, where you suddenly get the freedom and people actually listen to you, and people actually think, "Wow, she is doing some great things there." Right. That's intoxicating. This must have been absolutely. Such a boost That's the
1: word that I was just thinking of. Was <laughs> it's intoxicating?
0: And that is a driver, isn't it? I remember that to actually, yeah, a similar experience to to be to feel like nothing, to feel like a nobody, to not fit in. Um, mm-hmm. And then suddenly to be someone, um, it's it's you want to do it again and again and again. Now that has a good side because people like us create things and build things right. and are driven. And in my case, I decided I needed to do a publication every six months. So I was, I was doing some research project in addition to my teaching, uh, to, to being taught um, as a junior. I was doing extra work here and there and everywhere. And it was basically keeping myself busy, busy, busy. Now, that had an advantage for my career, of course. It also had the advantage that I didn't have to think about my trauma. That I didn't have to think mm-hmm. about my own negative emotions. So I became the absolute workaholic and achieveaholic um, by, uh, and therefore allowing myself not having to think, not having to, yes. nine, not having to feel. Should I should say.
1: Well, you know, people used to ask me all the time, Jill, what are you running away from? What are you Ah. what are you working so hard to get Ah. away from? And it used to very much offend me because Ah. I was like, I am just driven to excel. I'm driven to Ah. do the best. I've been I've been supposed to do this job, so I'm gonna do it the best that I can. And so it wasn't until um, until the bottom dropped out six years ago, that I really had to take a hard, hard look at that. And you know, they say in recovery, it works until it doesn't, and it worked until all of a sudden it didn't.
0: Uh huh. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, how how were you dealing with the problems of others, whilst at the same time? trying to run away uh, to keep going with that that uh, picture whilst running away from your own things. Were you good in picking up abuse for example in others?
1: Mm-hmm. Well I I was good and very sensitive to uh, some of those things, but in truth, I worked with white suburban churches most of the time, and so the problems in suburbia are often hidden and not at the surface and not exposed to the world because there's a there's a standard to keep up, right? And so I I often I often you know, suspected things or would deal with things, but it didn't affect me deeply in in the same sense that it did later on. Yeah. I also worked as a business consultant, as a church consultant. And so as a consultant, you drop in and you leave. You don't have to stay and sit in other people's stuff yeah. and other people's problems. Uh, but as I started my own church, I started a church in Seattle and started a church here locally and then eventually started a church that I led independently, and when I started that, we started with a disenfranchised, um, disadvantaged audience, mm-hmm. and so their their problems were more at the surface, uh, more exposed, more willing to be talked about. It was a multi ethnic congregation, mm-hmm. and so uh, we had we had everybody from uh, the very very least of these, the very poor, to people who were very privileged, and so our community then was one where people would talk about abuse and trauma and addiction and uh, human sexuality and all of those things. So it was a very honest environment, but it was also very traumatic as, as a leader of the group to be listening to and absorbing all of this stuff. And we had several suicide attempts during that time. We had a suicide success, a gal shot herself in the chest. We had um, we had addiction, we had spousal abuse, all of these different things. And, and whether I wanted to or not, I was really absorbing that.
0: Isn't it? That, that's what we're so good at. I, when I became a pain physician, I became an anesthetist first, and then specialized in chronic pain management. And I, uh, I was very good at it, because I mm-hmm. felt so much for the patient. And I knew that I could do so many things for patients. So it was was a beautiful journey, but a journey where I let transference occur without realizing it. I took on so many of the problems of my patients that it destroyed me. And that was the, Mm. the, the brutal thing. So... I could smell an addiction a mile away. I could, I could see the depression uh, whilst the patient was just opening the door to come into my consult room. I could see exactly as, as if I had radar vision. I could see what was going on. Could you see it in yourself? I didn't. I could not see myself suffering exactly the same things. Um, what did you feel? When you, when you You felt about, when you felt, when you looked at someone and he told you their story, what were the emotions they were going through?
1: Well, for one, I was very cut off from my emotions. And from my capacity to, to feel, which sounds uh, uh, counterintuitive to being a minister and being cut off from your emotions, but, but I had taught myself to, to separate those things, but I did feel like my perception and my ability to, to see and spot and understand people's, people's, hardships was very keen. Mm. And, Mm. and I think it's interesting that I was drawn to a community that was so wounded, drawn to a a group of people that were so wounded, when I myself was equally, if not more significantly wounded Mm. in my background and in my life
0: and you nailed it there that's exactly it we we become the knight in shining armor for someone else because we could never or we did never have that experience in our own life and we are feeling powerless or at least at that time i felt powerless about the things that were happening in my own life the emotions that were that were washing over me uh, these were brutal times a lot of shit happened a lot of trauma happened around that time whilst I was a pain physician, as well in my private life. And it was, it was awful. So therefore, I became so fixated on fixing other people, helping other people. And maybe that was my, my rescue for a little bit, Mm -hmm. but also my excuse not having to face the trauma and my own feelings. So Mm -hmm. there I was working really, really hard, focusing on others. And when I then couldn't focus anymore because I was just working 16 hours straight, I then went straight for the bottle because then I again didn't have to focus on my, my own emotions. Well, and
1: people, people are funny, because people will say to you, you need to slow down and don't work so (laughs) hard and, and, and uh, quit pushing yourself at the same time as they'll say, I want more of you. (laughs) I want, I want you to help (laughs) me more, right? (laughs) So it's kind of a push pull.
0: I like it. I like it. So I mean, uh, did you have that realization? Then? Did you did you actually sense what was going on? Or were you? Were you trapped? And lost in your own little hamster wheel, doing more and more for others without realizing what was happening to you.
1: I was absolutely lost. As a, as a young mother, uh, we had four kids and five years in our yeah. 20s. And so I was, you know, chasing a career and finishing, uh, you know, several levels of education and raising a young family and everything was at the behest of others. So I was doing everything uh, for others without realizing my own neglect.
0: And we are proud about it. Uh, Was in your environment where you brought up that hard work is the only way forward that you have to work in order to get somewhere that it's expected from you? I certainly was. These were my principles. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. Well, I was raised in a single parent household. My parents uh, divorced when they were when I was very young, and so I was raised with a single mother who had an eighth grade education mm-hmm. and cleaned buildings for a living, and uh, came from nothing, and came from no money, and worked extraordinarily hard, and refused to accept help from anybody, and was just dogmatic about the work ethic now there are there are good parts to that right to the work ethic mm-hmm. as long as you're not cut off from your reasons why and your emotions uh about it
0: wisely said isn't it but yeah the wisdom comes unfortunately many many years too late um or not too late they, they, all the wisdom comes at the time when the time is right okay so right
1: Well, I think the thing is is that I didn't realize that the amount of work that I was doing was to the detriment of myself. I didn't realize that I was actually running myself into the ground thinking that I was doing good for everybody else.
0: That's the that's the heart the hard truth. I couldn't see it. Maybe I did see it, but I didn't want to see it. If that makes sense. Right. I think it was. It was. I was happy. Um, no, wrong. Happy is so not the right word. Yeah, I was. I was miserable, <laughs> but I was at least content in my misery. Um, and I was. I was, you know, bathing like in it, like like a pig in mud. And it is just
1: well, you yeah. know, it's it like I said earlier, it's funny because people will say, Hey, slow down, take a deep breath, but at the same time, they will ask you for more and give you accolades for producing. Mm. So the messages are very, very mixed when it comes to success and drive and achievement, right?
0: Oh, so true. It's madness, absolute madness. No, it is but what can you do? I mean, what can you do? Ultimately, it is life is such a a, a a challenge to us, and we we don't see it when we are this young, when we are we are trying to make it all happen. We are trying to. You were a fighter. You were a survivor. Mm-hmm. You were a woman who was going out there, a go getter. Look at her. Yes. She has got four children and uh, going going just all out, being a minister, being this that. You actually, you get accolades, and that is sort of the quick fix, good junk food that makes you feel so good for a very short period of time. (laughs) And then comes the sugar slump. (laughs) Right,
1: right. And you're searching for the
0: next fix. (laughs)
1: that for me didn't happen until my mid 40s right interesting i mean i you know i'm almost almost 50 now and it didn't happen until my early mid 40s that that slump that sugar slump actually happened
0: interesting what were there little slumps were there uh, how how did you keep going there must i mean in 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 what 20 years of being a minister um, there would have been times when you burned out i mean i had so right. many burnouts and i look back it's no longer funny how were you
1: well i think there were several many many slumps that happened yeah. uh, but it was just this sense of pull yourself by your bootstraps and power through, you know, I had, I had good power to, to do that. But one of the major things that happened was we had a daughter that at age two was diagnosed with cancer. And so we had to deal with uh, some very traumatic Traumatic years with with her. Uh, thank God she's now twenty two and doing well. But it was it was very very hard. But she at the end of her treatment, I took a nosedive uh, emotionally and and discovered that I was dealing with some depression. Now I'd always thought, you know, I'm just pulling myself through. I'm so busy. I'm tired because I'm busy. I'm overworked, mm-hmm. and so that's why I don't feel good. But it was the first. First time that I'd really acknowledged that I was dealing with some significant depression, mm-hmm. and so, but again, it wasn't until it wasn't until my marriage was in trouble, the church was was uh, costing me a lot to uh, to maintain emotionally. Uh, I had four teenagers at home. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until all the chaos kind of reached its pinnacle, and that I just absolutely collapsed under the weight.
0: Okay. Well, you sound so familiar to me. God, it makes me (laughs) actually... Yeah, No, it is is exactly that. Uh, Yet, you came from a complete different belief system. Here was Jesus Christ who was in your life, and who was uh, supposed to give you solace, who was supposed to be there for you and guide you. And so you could say, what the hell? Your imaginary friend didn't <laughs> yeah. really do very well there, did he? Okay. Or, or well, and, let's let's, and, re- let's rephrase that. What lessons did he want you to learn? And why did it take you so long? <laughs> Is that, I, so let's rephrase I'm it this way. a
1: slow learner, Stefan. <laughs>
0: <laughs> touché, touché. So I mean, did you ask that question? Did you doubt Jesus at any time during that journey?
1: No, I had this very strong sense from the time that I was a child that God was real and that God was for me. And so even during the times when, for instance, uh, we went through a custody a custody battle uh, between the state had taken custody of me. I was in foster care and my mother who was abusing me had made a threat on my life and people from the church stood up in the courtroom and testified against me, a child, to say that my mother would never abuse me. So even in the midst of that, I had this very strong sense that people are flawed and people can be bad, but God can be good. And the church can be good in spite of the people that are fatally flawed. And as a young person, I always felt that way. So I never doubted God. I never doubted the presence of God. I was one who, who could feel the presence of God very viscerally in Mm -hmm. my life, very physically. And it wasn't until I crashed, that I really doubted God's operation in my life. It took me 40 some years to get there and to begin that process of deep questioning and absolute doubt and deconstructing my faith.
0: It's interesting that you deconstruct your faith, yet you, you, what came first? Your personal healing? Were you angry with God? Were you angry with, with, with Jesus with, or were you frustrated? Why did you deconstruct your faith rather than focus maybe on yourself, on how much you maybe contributed to things, how your responses to things that happened to you were potentially up to you, more up to you than you wanted to take into account earlier?
1: Yeah. You know, I, I don't know the answer to that, except to say that I never felt, I mean, I ended up in a, in a psych and trauma facility and I felt like everything was dark. The lights went out. There was no faith. There was no God. There was no, there was no uh, rightness to the world because Everything stopped. I didn't know if I had a family. I didn't know if I had a job. I didn't know. I didn't know if I had character or substance or purpose or anything when I'm sitting in this place, trying to figure out how to function, how to even operate, because I was so destroyed that I didn't Mm -hmm. even know my own my own purpose or or reason for being
0: what led to the admission
1: well uh to that to that mission or to, to figure to out the, myself to the, no, no,
0: to the admission to the hospital how did you actually oh, physically to the admission. End? how how did you end up in the <laughs> hospital
1: well uh my marriage was in trouble. And so uh, I had we had been in some therapy for our marriage. And the denomination that I worked for is very, very gracious and had been paying for that and had been helping us through that. And at some point in that process, uh, it became apparent that we were going down a very wrong path and, and the therapist had suggested that we separate. And so that created a big emotional crisis for me. And that emotional crisis led to the denomination, the church structure, taking taking over the church and saying, we're going to take care of you and help you figure this out. And they actually sent me to uh, to this psych and trauma facility. Uh, For a workshop on childhood trauma And they said it's not that we feel like You're the cause of all the problems in your marriage It's just that we feel like you could benefit From some understanding of how The trauma in your life and the trauma In the church congregation is Compounding itself so they were very very Wise and astute in that And sent me to this workshop on childhood Trauma on the third day I had A major dissociative episode And had lost all sense Of time, place, reality Everything and they said you really need to be admitted to the hospital. And I said, you really need to get a life because there is no way, I've got four kids at home, I've got a job, I've got a husband, I've got to go. And they said, no, you really need to. So they called the denomination then and I knew it was- tens of thousands of dollars, right. Mm -hmm. To be in any kind of recovery, you know, facility. And uh, they said, we're going to call the the church group that sent you and they called and the denomination said, whatever she needs, we'll pay for it and so uh so I ended up being admitted then to the hospital and then because I have a dissociative disorder it took them a very long time to kind of diagnose what was going on with me because there were so many parts of myself that were disenfranchised and they were trying to figure it all out and so it took three months of me being there uh it was was a six-week program and I ended up being there for three months, mm-hmm. and while well, they diagnosed uh, my mental illness,
0: but that's exactly what what happens uh, in children who come from alcoholic families or children who are abused, um, where there's trauma in early life. They they dissociate. Right. That is sort of the classic the classic response of for their survival. They, mm-hmm. uh, they get raped and yet their mind is somewhere else they, and right. it, is, it is such a normal thing yet because it actually worked for you so well when you were a young child, it becomes the, the subconscious go-to. And therefore, that's what you said. You had it all so nice, compartmentalized. Um, there was my trauma. Let's just pack that over there. Forget that it right. even is there. Um And now suddenly to bring that out and deal with it is a huge, huge challenge.
1: Right. And, you know, it's interesting that you phrase it that way is because uh, in my in my diagnoses, when they through all the testing and the assessments and everything, they said one of the ways I deal with my trauma is called traumatic organization, which means that. You know a trauma happens, it's like a book, you put it on the shelf. It's like another book, you put it on the shelf, and they said, Joel, your shelf broke and you've got a mess and you gotta deal with it.
0: <laughs> oh, so I love it. Oh, what a beautiful picture. <laughs> that,
1: that's how they described it to me. So uh, so yes, that's how I I organized my trauma, set everything up on the shelf hmm. until it it broke and became too much.
0: When you're in that scenario when suddenly this realization hits you it is very daunting can you remember that or was that such a dramatic time in its own right when you were in in rehab or in 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 this hospital that you that you only have fleeting memories of it what can you remember from it
1: you know it's very it's Kind of spotty, kind of vague ish in the very beginning because exactly. I was so dissociated. I was so uh, just dis- discombobulated. I didn't know what was going on. I didn't even know why I was there. Oh. I mean, I told them after about three or four. Four days I said, I'm leaving. I don't know why I'm here. And they said, No, no, really, you're you shouldn't do that. And it wasn't until I got actual diagnosis of what was going on with me with my complex PTSD and depressive disorder and anxiety disorder and a dissociative disorder. And I began to absorb some of that and to learn. Not only how it happened, but to learn what it was, I didn't have any definitions for some of those things. Mm. i I couldn't have told you I couldn't have told you anything about you know depressive major depressive disorders or or you know, crazy anxiety disorders. i could I could have told you a little bit, but certainly not to the extent that the education that they gave me.
0: Mm. See, it's interesting now that you say it like that. Because for me, it's also plain, obvious, so blatantly, obviously, C. Because I had the training. I know exactly what the diagnostic criteria for a depression are or for PTSD, etc. And uh, seemingly, I've learned through books, either in my profession, or through those books that I actually read uh, for pleasure, uh, memoirs of of soldiers etc so i had an understanding right. of all that but i couldn't diagnose it in myself in fact mm-hmm. the the ptsd only came out literally the diagnosis became clear to me two three years ago um when when someone else i knew was going through a really bad period of his ptsd as a, as a former sort of air force special forces kind of dude and and he was he actually sought help and one day he said look it's going to be fine um it's going to be all, all right from here and i thought oh mm-hmm. shit oh shit is he thinking about doing something and he said no, no no i got the right help you will you will see i'm going to be fine in a week and i looked at him and in my mind i went through yeah right you don't sleep. You have, you're have hypervigilant. And I went through the, 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 all the diagnostic right. criteria. And only then, only then, at what was it, 52, something like that, 53, suddenly I realized, hang on, I'm describing myself here. When I right. went through the diagnostic right. criteria, it took me this long. How long did I know what is PTSD? Oh, at least a quarter of a century? Come on. And here I am finally getting the breakthrough in my own life, so and that is me as a doctor. I should know. Right. I should bloody know. Yet here you are. <laughs> and sometimes I I don't give myself the the I don't don't think that people who have never delved into mental health for them it's so difficult to understand what is actually going on when we speak about depression. Right. What unless you have lived it, unless you have felt it, unless you have seen the darkness and in, involving you and and. and taking you in and you can't see any light whatsoever then then you don't know what we're talking about
1: Right. It's so, uh, you know, in a world where, uh, oh, I'm so depressed. Oh, I have anxiety. Oh, I had a panic attack. When those words are becoming so normative that they're becoming descriptive of, I'm sad, I'm having a bad day, I'm anxious. We're using them as synonyms when they really aren't. And they're actually diagnostic, diagnostic criteria. And so for me, I felt like I had, Always done a really good job at advocating for those other people that had mental illness mm-hmm. without understanding that the mental illness was also in me and I was identifying in them what was in me. And so, but I didn't know the difference between depression and a major depressive disorder. I didn't know what dysthymia meant. I didn't know, and dissociation was completely unfamiliar to me. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, I live in a different world where it's trauma informed as is the the favorite phrase right now. Mm. Where I I have educated myself and have been forced to educate myself a lot more about that. Mm. But you know, I I just didn't I just didn't know, and it like it's, it took you know four decades.
0: Mm. And yet here you are. We all have got this supercomputer in our head but no one has ever given us the user manual so we hear tapping on a few things oh that feels right. good what's that oh that's alcohol oh good oh that oh that oh that doesn't feel good oh shit no i don't like that what's that Honesty. And right. oh, no, I forget the honesty no i don't like that <laughs> um, <laughs> so that that is how it works and it, it takes trauma it takes us being so uncomfortable in our own skin that we simply have to make changes that we simply have to learn about ourselves and that's the reason that it takes a a major breakdown uh, like yours like mine and like so many other people out there um, before they finally jump off the hamster wheel and actually stop and think and feel and Start surrounding themselves with people who have been where they are now and maybe learn how to change their life uh, towards a new direction. How to jettison some of the the core beliefs and some of the the behaviors that maybe no longer suit you, maybe never suited mm-hmm. you, but they were still serving a need. And here right. you are after after 20 years. So here you were three months really working hard on yourself. When you left, did you go straight back to ministering? Did you go straight back into the church? No,
1: no. (laughs) I actually, um, I came home and because you know, in a, in a rehab recovery environment, everything's so desensitized and, or you're so sensitized to everything and become so uh, isolated in the sense of not having a lot of stimuli and all of that kind of stuff. You know, they're trying to calm your brain the hell down. Um, You know, I, I came home and I was almost an agoraphobic. I was at home. I only went out for doctor's appointments to go to therapy. I couldn't, uh, handle the stimulus of a bunch of people, let alone a bunch of work. I couldn't go back to work. Mm-hmm. We ended up closing the church down because there was no one that could that could come in and mm-hmm. and take over where I had been and uh, it, and there was a building shift and a bunch of different things that happened that aided in that kind of demise. but uh, i yeah I just went to therapy and went home. I sat on the couch and colored for like a year. And, and I couldn't care for my family, my husband, who we had not reconciled, but we're living in the same house. Uh, He was caring for the children almost exclusively, I just couldn't function. And it took a couple of years before really, you know, my therapist says, you know, the first couple of years I was working really hard, but you weren't even here. Like I wasn't even really that that present in, in what was going on because I just didn't, my brain wasn't there. It wasn't functioning.
0: Wow. Did you feel it? Did you feel that you were in this place or it was simply not there? You were simply... Caught up somewhere.
1: No, I, I was absolutely bereft. I felt like I had lost uh, a, a, Core piece of my identity. Remember, I had been somebody's pastor since I was 17 years old. And if I couldn't call myself pastor anymore, then what was I? And if I wasn't that, then what was I worth? Because I had attached worth to my occupation and to my title so much that it absolutely, absolutely sidelined me because I couldn't figure out then if I'm not that. And if I just sit on the couch and go to yoga and That's all I do. Then, then what can I possibly be worth to anybody else?
0: Beautiful. That was exactly what I went through. I was an empty shell after rehab. I, as part of my my supervision by the medical council, they they made me see reason that maybe pain medicine is not the field for me. That Mm I'm I'm too sensitive, uh, that I'm taking on too much, and that really, for my own mental health, I should stop being a pain physician. Now, that was all I could, I could, I was for the 10 years prior to that. So um, I had worked really, really hard to be the person who I was. I ran a huge pain clinic, and there I was. Suddenly, that was all taken away from me, so it felt initially. And I was empty. I had no clue who I was, and it was scary, very, very scary at the very same scary. token, at the same token, nowadays, I understand that this was the biggest opportunity in my life to reinvent myself to explore who do I want to be when I grow up and actually work on myself. It was like suddenly being given mm-hmm. an empty canvas, and you can draw whatever you want, you can paint whatever you want. I didn't see it then. And it was a bit weird because I, I started living again, but this time with training wheels on my little bike. And uh, and mm-hmm. it felt like a bit like that. And Absolutely. So, and so what were the first things that you did? Who was the new person that sort of came budding out of the ground there? And And who was the new you?
1: You know... One of the first things I did, ironically, was I was uh, teaching a once a week, twice a week little college course um, and just kind of getting involved with uh, students on uh, in small classes and small groups, basically. And that allowed me to still be up front and be a little bit detached, but involve myself in other people's world. Mm. Uh, So that's one of the first things that I did that was and then I could come home and just sleep for a couple of days, you know, I could, (laughs) I could ramp myself up for this. And then I could and then I could rest. Um, But then, you know, I started to talk about mental illness, because I I didn't have a world where people freely talked about their mental illness until I went to rehab Mm. and and all of a sudden I was immersed in that kind of an environment and where people talked about it as um, as what it really is. Mental illness is a physical illness. And they began to talk about it with Mm. the same kind of uh, graciousness and openness that we talk about mental or we talk about physical illness. And so I decided that I was going to start writing. I'd always wanted to be a writer. I had done quite a bit of writing and I uh, decided that I was going to write. And so I did a hundred day write and started a blog and just decided about five days in, I decided, you know what, you know, screw it. I'm just going to let it all I'm just going to let it all hang out and say, here's, here's what I am. Here's, here's what my mental illness is. Here's how I live my life. And it was like the emperor's new clothes, you know, it's like, I'm totally naked. Nobody can tell me otherwise, you know? And so I just, I started this blog and then because of the blog, I started a podcast and because of the podcast, I get to talk to you.
0: <laughs> oh, what a beautiful journey. Is. But you, you actually, you literally, you, you, You found the new you uh, in very small steps, and you tried a little bit there, and suddenly it's. and, And this coming out is such a beautiful thing, is it not?
1: It is, but I'm not the same. I don't, you know, I work very part time. I do jobs that I work from home and I can do self care and take care of my time and my, you know, and, and, and I realize I have the luxury of doing that because Mm -hmm. of the way our financial structure is and all of that, I do have the luxury of being able to self-select my work and all of that. So I want to acknowledge that. Mm. But um, we have made some decisions uh, that have helped me in being able to do that.
0: Wow. What a beautiful, beautiful turnaround that is. Uh, uh, How did your church support you? Once you came home out of the hospital, and did they did they know what was happening? Did was there an understanding? And when I know not just oh okay, Jill has been in rehab or in, 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 in a mental institution, but also what it really meant? Were there people mm-hmm. who had been in similar in a similar boat who were able to guide you
1: within the church? Within the denomination, yes, I was well cared for. And the um, my supervisory structure was uh, they were extraordinarily gracious. And they said, you know, Jill, you will you will literally have to walk away from this relationship before we do. We are here for you. And that's, that's a pretty phenomenal thing for an administrative structure for a church, uh, for a denomination. That's pretty rare. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but my own congregation, because the church, because the denomination had taken over, they were then being cared for by my supervisors and so I was one step away from that so they were told give me space give our family space we need some time to heal so basically people just kind of backed off and were kind of afraid to engage engage me so I but people didn't really know they knew that I was that I needed help they knew that I was someplace Mm -hmm. but they didn't know I was in a psych Mm -hmm. and trauma facility they didn't know I was in a place called rehab you know they didn't They didn't know what was really going on except that I was gone.
0: And which is, of course, a good thing and a bad thing because on the one hand, the church wanted to to protect you, wanted to protect your privacy um, because good people and bad people gossip and the last thing you need is is actually someone talking behind your back. Oh, yeah, she is with loopy, that kind (laughs) of stuff. So there you are. There you are. She is. uh, So they have protected you. And that's really nice, right. but the flip side is that people don't come to you and don't right. do anything. I I was three weeks into rehab. Um, one day, um, someone said, "You've got a visitor," and I said, "What?" And I knew my my family on that weekend was not you to come down, and so I and there was an anesthetic technician I was working with, and he made that three hour journey to come to me and just say, "Hey." brother i know where you have been mm. he shared a little bit his journey with addiction with uh he told me things that probably not very few people know about him and he just was there 20 minutes 30 minutes and i will never forget that because he That's actually a kindness. went kindness, yeah. yeah he came he, he spent a day basically traveling to come to me for, to spend 20 minutes and say brother you're not alone this is my story, and I've pulled through. I'm, um, I if I can do it, you can do it, kind of a thing, and that was one of the first times that experienced that brotherhood, um, of uh, brother and sisterhood, shall I say, um, of like-minded souls who have gone through trauma, have transformed, and are now having that bond, who are having that honesty, because we have all gone through the shit. We, we. Right we are no longer bullshitting so you can't bullshit a bullshitter and that <laughs> is right. that is just such a beautiful thing yeah. so therefore
1: there were some there were some people in our congregation that literally said Jill you have been through with us through every f and thing and we are going to be with you and um oh I wish I could remember the phrase but um you know they you know they basically said we are going to be be with you until until the f and end and we yeah. are we are we are here so So, you know, I don't care what they say. They can't keep us away from you because this is this is what love looks like. And you have taught us how to love. And this is how we're going to love.
0: Oh, beautiful, beautiful. Oh, that's so lovely to hear that. That's Mm -hmm. so lovely, because then there is still stigma out there, a huge stigma. Um, You could argue that many people are in churches because of their own trauma, of their own problems so maybe there's a bit of a self-selection going on that those people in the church in theory could be more susceptible to to the understanding that it's okay not to be okay at the Mm -hmm. same token uh certainly the church experiences i had in the past were just of some quite nasty people Mm. being in church you know, it was yeah. far more important for them to look around and say, oh, look what skirt she is wearing there. Oh, God. Oh. And did you hear? Did you hear they've got a new car? Oh, God. They, you know, those kind of <laughs> fucking gossip. Unbelievable. Yeah. That was yeah. far more the church in Germany that I knew that I was sort of, oh, and I thought, nah, thanks. I don't want to have anything to do with that. So, therefore, it really depends upon upon your own experiences. But I love to hear Absolutely. That, that actually there were people there who came out of the woodwork to support you because you're very fragile. You're very – you're licking your wounds. You're still you're still the, the wounded animal. Uh, that is lying in the corner when you come out of rehab Um, whilst you think you have done oh I've done so much work in reality you're at the very start of your journey
1: (laughs) you know and and that's so true people ask me all the time they said when you get out when you got out did you feel better Mm. and I'm like it's not a hospital like you go in with a broken leg and you come out with a leg that's set in in a cask Mm. I just feel like I just have better questions. That's yeah. how I felt when I came out. It's nice. Nice. not that I was better, but that I had better questions.
0: Nice. That's lovely said. Because, yeah, that's it. It is. And they have just taught you how to ride a bike. You're still on your training wheels. Now, you, you, were, you were for three months in a very isolated, beautiful bubble where there were no mortgage issues, there was not neither here nor there, there, there were no, no teenagers who looked at you funny um, or did not do anything. Right. You know, there, the, the little traumas that are normal in daily life, you're protected from them when you're in rehab. But then you have to come out and you suddenly have to to walk the walk, not just talk the talk. And I think that right. is so challenging. Did you find yourself? Well, you in a- you're in
1: an environment where everybody has stuff everybody's just got shit going on and you just go okay i'm one of you and i think pain is the great equalizer right where you know the the bottom line of addictive behavior and of trauma is that there's pain Mm -hmm. and it becomes so one of my best friends was um it was 22 23 and queer and and totally different religiously and Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and socially and age wise. And we just bonded on our, our pain and on our similarities and are still very, very good friends. And mm-hmm. so, and, and so it really became this environment where it was comforting because you don't assume that the other person is just looking at you like what the hell's mm. matter with her. You mm. just assume somebody's looking at you and go, she's here for a reason, mm. you know, same as me. Mm.
0: It's beautiful, isn't it? When you can actually own up to who you really are, what's and all. I think that is such a, such a freedom and such a an, uh, development within yourself. I, I, I as a doctor I was not allowed to criticize environments in which I worked. So there's often in contracts written in, you're not allowed to speak negative about a hospital. So and there were often lots of bad things happening, and bad things happening to me and to my patients due to mm-hmm. systems. And it was oh I was always angry. And I could never speak out, I had a feeling. And now I was in rehab. And the moment I said the first time Hi, I'm Stefan. I'm an alcoholic. That was when the flood, when the, the dam broke. From mm-hmm. then on, you couldn't shut me up. And it was a safe environment. I could actually be honest about my mental problems. I could also be honest about the, the things that had happened to me. Um, and I could talk negative. Not negative. I could be honest about the shit situations in which I had found myself. Yeah. Um, And it was such an intoxicating, beautiful feeling, such a freedom to finally say the truth and say it out loud for what it was. Right. And
1: do you ever do you ever crave those uh, that kind of environment, that kind of freedom, that openness that existed there? Do you ever crave being back there?
0: I'm cheating because I'm creating that environment on my show. So, ah. <laughs> so my show and the people that I surround me with, my guests, and inevitably my guests become sort of collaborators in the future and we do things together. So suddenly I have got this group of friends Um, that are from all over the world but we are brothers and sisters because we have gone through Mm -hmm. so much shit together uh just in different 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 shades of shit um so it therefore it is i actually don't miss the rehab because i can be so honest brutally honest with you here on my show Mm -hmm. and so i give myself the freedom otherwise i would miss it absolutely no two ways around it
1: that's interesting. I never really thought of my podcast in that light, but it's mm. true. We surround ourselves with people that um, become a community that's that's engaging and that is uh, supportive and. Mm. Yeah.
0: So it is. I true. get right now. I had an hour of therapy with you, and I guess you had an hour of therapy with me. Uh, Absolutely. So it's, so it's actually one of these beautiful things. So there is that proves that the opposite to addiction is connection, uh, and here we are. We are living proof that that uh, that this this fact is hundred percent true, and yeah, I wouldn't have it any other way it is i get a kick out of every every show and i mean regardless of i mean how important it is for me shows that i got up this morning at 5 45 to get ready for a show at six um where i was the guest but i didn't mind i was actually looking forward to it and normally at 5 45 for the record no, don't even talk to me. And, and until I had at least a few coffees, okay, don't talk to me. Yet this morning I was, come on, let's do it. And that was so beautiful, okay. <laughs> so therefore, that's that's that shows what a beautiful environment it is when you are open, when you are transparent, because that then allows you to address some of the issues. That allows you to grow. That allows you to transform right. further. Because today there were a few times when I sort of thought, huh... In our little discussion here, and it was beautiful. You made me think. You made me reevaluate certain things. Mm-hmm. You asked me questions where I thought, "Ah," and, and it's. I love it. I love it. I've yeah. grown. I've grown. i made significant little steps forward today, and I wouldn't miss mm-hmm. it for the world. I so, therefore, that. will I continue with my show? Hell. Until I'm very old and cray and have to readjust that <laughs> my a few times in the show. But, you know, today is the session 10,213 with Stefan I <laughs> <laughs> I don't care because there is, we all have so much to give once we have right. transformed. Um, we have got so much to explore further. So, yes, I always say I'm addicted to life nowadays. I'm addicted to becoming a better man a better human being and for that I'm 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 excited absolutely excited yes oh Jill here we are absolutely oh Jill you're a gorgeous woman I mean you have gone you've gone through hell and back and you here you are and you're making now your mess a message and how beautiful is Mm -hmm. that you're coming out here to to share the darkness that you had gone through and in turn now give hope to others and that's I hope so. what a legacy that is because mm-hmm. that is that is a true minister that is a true a true mm-hmm. a true daughter of jesus christ um i hope i use the right words here but it is mm-hmm. ultimately yeah, thank uh, you
1: that's beautiful
0: yeah because that that is how i see actually a christian so maybe that makes me a christian but I still don't believe in him. So, uh, uh, maybe maybe I, maybe I consider myself a tool of, of something out there <laughs> that tries to make this world a better place. Maybe that is the power that I get from somewhere. What else would drive me to do that? Uh, it's not self-satisfaction. Uh, it is way beyond that. Um, no, this is... I don't know what drives me, but it's beautiful. It's an yeah. energy that I have discovered, and uh, it is beautiful. So... Uh, whatever it is, guys, and it doesn't matter if you believe in God or not, it doesn't it it doesn't matter. Um, There is a higher power, I think we need to accept that there is something bigger than us. I think that's a given what it is semantics, if it drives you to do good things, accept it for what it is. It's an energy form out there that wants you to improve yourself and in turn the world. I'll take it. Okay. I don't need to know the, the, the details. Um, I'm quite happy to, to be guided and do good things and put smiles on people's faces. That's exactly what you do, Jill. For that, I commend you. And for that, Thank I'm you. so grateful that you came onto my show.
1: Thank you if, so much for having mm, me. Absolutely. And I look forward to you being on my show.
0: <laughs> I was about to ask. Now, tell us a bit about the work that you're doing. Where can people find you?
1: Well, you can find me at jillreilly.com. And on there, there's also the links to my podcast, which is Post Traumatic Faith, which is available on all the uh, podcast platforms. Uh, Post Traumatic Faith is really kind of about that space where faith and hope meet hardship and challenge and trauma. And it's in that space there that we kind of find ourselves where we're struggling and, and just figuring stuff out and kind of... Um, Um, kind of defining who we are Mm. in the in the middle of that and so so that is what i do now and i'm also a writer and and have some personal projects going on in there so maybe there'll be a book with my face on it someday
0: (laughs) and guys look down there look into the description of the podcast and the youtube channel uh, because you get all the information there head over to chillreilly.com and just check her out what have you got to lose, eh? So there might be some nuggets there of wisdom where you think, huh. And who knows? Maybe you find your own voice and maybe get in touch with chill and say, Hey, look, this is my story. Would you be interested? And so maybe you can make your own your own mess, your message. And that is powerful. So when you actually find your own voice, that is the moment that your transformation comes leaps and bounds bounces because it's so it's so freeing it's it's Mm -hmm. wow it is it's just amazing so our journeys are gorgeous if you let them be um and guys it doesn't matter what the past brought to you the past your trauma does not define you but let your trauma be the driver that pushes you forward into a new direction a direction that you choose and with steps yes. that you choose to take and that makes you, that takes you away from being a victim to being a survivor and make you become a thriver. And that's exactly <laughs> what Jill is. Here she is. She uh, she lost herself for a bit and now she is the new and improved version who goes out there and is truly taking on the world and therefore Fantastic. So, Jill, you're yeah. a gorgeous woman. Thank you so much for Thank coming you. on to my show. You humbled me and honored me. Mm.
1: Thank you. It's an honor for me. To-
0: <laughs> cool. And you guys out there, I believe in you. Stay strong. Uh, it's okay not to be okay. And look after yourself. Bye. Bye.